This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. So many questions. What's worse, drawing the offside lines on the wrong player or not drawing them at all? How valuable to Mikel Arteta might that PGMOL apology be come the end of the season? Will Manchester City fans sticking up a big banner in support of a high-end barrister make Barney think what might have been? Should Pep have been more defiant in that press conference? Do we all now know where Jan Bednarek is? What next for Nathan Jones, Luton again or the mining village to take the kids for gymnastics? Are Manchester United in the title race? And who knew that Thomas Suchek was quicker to get down to shots from the edge of the box than Fraser Forster? There's some sportsmanship in Scotland, some William Wordsworth corrections, a documentary gets in touch all that plus your questions and that's today's guardian football weekly on the panel today nuruddin chowdhury at bearded genius welcome hello hello barry glendenning hello max rushford and do we still have the all new barney ronnie hi max <laughs> back again and do you know i was so excited barney because i know how much you hate talking about var all right and i was just as these incidents kept happening i thought is this really going to be tricky to avoid it it's not so much hating it it's like it feels this i was trying to think about it last night there's going to be loads of, it's like one of those subjects at school where it's got away from you you physics there's stuff you just realize you're never going to know and you're in a panic you've got a test i was trying to think well who did what someone forgot something else there was outrage about this i heard people on the radio talking about there was an ex-footballer they had a caller on saying you know my problem is these referees they go down to the championship and they still get paid they're still working <laughs> so the, the idea is they should be actually arrested should we be arrested they generally seem to be that angry about it Yes, I mean, Noz, you saw this. I, I put out for questions, and, and Barry and I were on the radio finding this all quite funny. The you know the lines being drawn in the wrong player, and you know Thomas Suchek's handball and all this stuff. And I just said, look, people make mistakes, and you you saw that Herman wrote on Twitter. Max Rushton keeps saying people make mistakes. When a surgeon makes a mistake and a patient dies, it's just a mistake. People have to pay for their mistakes. This woke view of it doesn't matter. It was just a mistake. Move on is wrong. So on, on on that basis. What should happen to to Lee Mason, Noz, do you think, who was at, at the Emirates and he didn't draw the line on Christian Norgard and as a result, Ivan Tony scored? What what should be the punishment for Lee Mason? It's, it's mad. Like, the, the thing I love about it is the visual image of Lee Mason, the, the like, stereotypical um, security guard in a movie, just, like, brushing crumbs off his top reading a magazine while, like, a ca- <laughs> some kind of Ocean's Eleven capers going on on the security cameras behind him. What was he doing? Like, he's literally got one job. I, I, I don't understand. There's, there's so many things that happened this weekend where you kind of think, what was the logic? What was happening in that scenario? Like, wasn't the... Um, is it the guy that was at um, West Ham Chelsea, um, the head of VAR? Neil Swarbrick. Just on these lines thing, Barney... Is it worse the one where Lee Mason forgets 
to draw a line or the one at Palace Brighton where they draw a line but <laughs> not on the last man? That that was a technical kind of mistake, and I don't think that the person deciding the decision is the person who draws the line. So that was, I mean, that's just kind of this a very complex system. If you think about it, it's actually I still find it kind of miraculous that we're doing this. So there's going to be ground. The one with forgetting to draw the lines. I mean, what happened there was he didn't have enough bandwidth to cope with all the stuff. Uh, you know, I am sympathetic because you're doing this thing in real time. It took ages. That wasn't initially what they were looking at. And he forgot to check the second offside. I mean, he just forgot. He thought, this has gone on for ages. I've done it. I've done it. We're okay. We can go. We can go. And he just forgot. And it's so easy to make that kind of stupid mistake. Most of us do it in private. He's done it really publicly. And all you hear is that we just forgot. It's like he was just sat there. Going, oh, what do you want me to do? Am I supposed to be involved in this game? But he was actually furiously trying to decide one thing and didn't have the... I mean, what's The point is you have to remember we've the reason we've got VAR is because people were watching this thing and making mistakes. What's happened is the same people, literally the same people are watching this thing, but with machines that they now have to work and still making mistakes. They're the same people. They're just making mistakes more technologically and with better better gadgets and gizmos. It's still the same semi-competent man uh, looking at things uh, and, and getting it wrong. Uh, until you eliminate anything human from football, it will always be bad and imperfect. <laughs> um, you know, the, I believe the robots are our future. We're, we're sitting here discussing this, and I... I think i'm pretty sure none of us care and we all find it quite funny but i i feel we should probably have somebody on who would you know because a lot of people are incredibly angry about this and you know really outraged i just find it quite amusing because my team isn't affected even if my team was affected i don't care enough about my team to be angry about it. It's just one of those things that happens. But but do you think most people are angry about it? Or is it just that you only hear the angry people? Because that's yeah, maybe. the way now, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's very hard to get people to ring in a phone in who don't mind about a certain subject. They just don't often call. So, you know, Dave's in Epping. He's indifferent about this whole thing. So I don't really, I didn't really want to call anyway. You rang me. You know, that that, that doesn't happen. That much. I think you're right. It's a lot of people shouting very loudly, going, This is the biggest league in the world. We're in embarrassment. I don't think anyone else is paying that much attention. On the on the Brighton Palace one, Barley says, Are you going to get Barry, as we did yesterday on the radio, to talk us through Howard Webb using the Father Ted method <laughs> to explain things to the VAR operators? <laughs> oh yeah, that was the um the cows in the caravan. You know, this is small. Those ones out in the field are far away. <laughs> but um, again, look, it's I, I probably should care more about it than I do, but I, I just can't bring myself to, to give much of a shit about refs getting things wrong. You know, players make mistakes, managers make mistakes, refs make, everyone makes mistakes. The thing is, Noz, regardless of that, Brentford were brilliant in this game and actually should have been out of sight, I thought. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, Tony had a great game. But again, this is the thing. There's lots of people saying that's the difference. It's the butterfly effect because like with Brentford, there's, there's nothing to say that they, they wouldn't have got something out of that game anyway because Arsenal weren't at it and, and Arsenal's 
overall form has started to falter a little bit now. So yeah, it's in a funny way, and 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 Arsenal fans certainly won't think this, but City have got something to feel annoyed about and have got this siege mentality. And maybe in a strange little way, Arsenal fans have got that now. I mean, Arsenal fans, in fairness to them, they don't need an excuse because they've been going on about players going up to the referees for, for weeks now. Anytime any player goes up to a referee, it's like, oh, is are the Premier League looking at this? Are they going to do something about this? Because uh, obviously they were victim to to that. But um, yeah, maybe maybe it'll give them that kind of siege mentality that they need, that um, obviously City have got in absolute droves. That's a really good point. But there are two ways you can go with it um, when things start going against you. You can either say, oh, we're born winners. This is, this is going to inspire us. Or you can think, oh, we're going to collapse. Everything's going wrong. And, I, and if you spend your life scrolling through Twitter, you'll find the kind of... Um, you know, innate fatalism of a team that hasn't won a, a title for all those many years creeping in. Um, it, I, I, I fear Arsenal might go the other way on that. Can you put your finger on, on sort of what's happened in the last two games? I mean, it's, they, they obviously couldn't keep that up. What, what they did in the first half of the season was actually ludicrous, really, wasn't it? They were on course for more than 100 points. Well, they tended to... Um, yeah, it, it's, it's suddenly um, slightly gone off a cliff. But... I think you have to credit other teams as well. Arsenal play the same game every time. And that's why we kind of assumed they'd be good enough to beat enough teams to keep this run going. But the one thing about the Premier League is uh, teams and managers are really, really adaptable and really smart. And you you can't just come once. You've got to come t- two or three times. Um, teams do find ways to interrupt and disrupt what you're doing. A lot of the players, their best players are having their best season and they're younger players and or someone like Odegaard who's become you know, fantastic this year. And there's always going to be little leaps and, and bumps and, and stuff that goes wrong in that. Um, I mean, it's just extraordinary that if they lose to City on Wednesday, they're not top anymore. And that's mm. basically it, isn't it? Somehow a team that's the champion team, you know, City, who have got a guy who scored 25 goals. If you'd said Harlan's going to score 25 goals by January, but you'd still be five points behind Arsenal, that seems impossible. Um, but now they, they seem to be not really functioning that well. They've got this massive sort of macrocosmic problem and they're going to go top of the table. And I kind of just think they're going to walk away with the league now. Um, it's a it's a strange thing, but that that's their kind of winning mentality is extraordinary, and obviously a winning mentality, and also having two squads of players who are good enough to win the league, because you have some generous benefactors that helps too. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind they didn't lose this game; they could have lost. They arguably have a case to say they were robbed, and Brentford are very very good. And Thomas Frank, you know, you talk about managers adapting. Thomas Frank is particularly good at adapting, tailoring tactics to specific opposition. It's not the end of the world drawn at home to Brentford. It's a game they probably would have expected to win, but Brentford are good. Yeah, I mean, I'm beaten in 10. Haven't lost since the 23rd of October. I mean, that's that's impressive for any team in the Premier League, Nods, isn't it? It is, and, and, and that's the thing. And we'll go on to some of the other games later on, but it's that thing of like, you can't, you can't um, relax in the Premier League. That's, that's one of the great things about the league. It's so deep. And the team's right at the bottom. They've still got good managers and they've still got um, really good players. And, and I think what this weekend showed is anyone, any top team who's slightly off form or not quite right, they'll get punished. And, and that's what happened to Arsenal because they faced a very good team. 
part of what makes it funner is people being annoyed. That's the whole, that's the whole point in in any of this. Like like Will Ferrell was talking talking on Sky about this about how about how he loves the storylines in, in in the in the Premier League, and it's true. It's, they're the best storylines in the whole world. But I was slightly disappointed in uh, Arteta in that he was so magnanimous. Like you want him, you want him to get annoyed. And he was so calm, and 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 it'll be it'll be a calmness that'll be to Arsenal's credit. But to to, to the to the neutral, you want him, you want that storyline to continue. You want him to lose his shit, and you want it to be a little bit WWE. Man City beat Villa three one. I don't know how long we need to spend talking about that match. It seemed to be a pretty regulation victory for, uh, to, to me. If anyone has any really salient points, please do. But the Pep's press conference before was fascinating. Uh, Elliot said with Pep's outburst about being blamed for Gerard's slip as opposed to 115 charges of financial irregularities. What else can we blame Man City for? Brexit, bounties being removed from boxes of celebrations, Mrs Brown's boys. It's always Mrs Brown's boys, isn't it? I find it a bit sad, really. It's a kind of modern disease, isn't it? Um, I was really, I really, I mean, Pep is this really important figure. I love Pep. He's a, he's a great football manager. He's given me so much entertainment. I think he's fantastic. But... I was so disappointed in his press conference. Um, he basically did this Trump thing of encouraging people to distrust the process. It's us against them. There's no right and wrong. There's no objective right. It's just tribes, just people saying, we're going to get you. That's what he said, appealing, because he probably thinks it will help them win at football. You know, you heard the enormous roar. He wants to win. He doesn't want the things he's done in the past to become discredited or tarnished. The correct response is, look, these are just charges. No one's been proven guilty of anything i understand they've got investigated let's see what happens we're not thinking about that not oh these people you know the, the letter to Cass that the clubs wrote has become this big thing as though they snitched they dobbed us in you know you know we they should be sort of strangled in their prison cell for snitching on us it's that's not what happened they obviously the other clubs if city have been cooking the books you've You've taken wealth and success away from other clubs who often by very fine margins don't win leagues, can't sign players, lose their best player. I mean, how are Leicester supposed to feel about Riyad Mahrez being spirited away and unsettled because you had enough money to do that? You know, everything that you achieve has an impact on other people. So the other clubs wrote to Cass and said, we want this resolved quickly because we may end up in the Champions League. That's the legitimate reason for doing that. We may end up in the Champions League if this ban is upheld and we need to we need to budget for that. So it's understandable that the clubs feel, well, we want this resolved. And if it's happened, we want them punished. That's not people being out to get you. That's not what's happening here. There are too many charges. This may fail. You know, it may fail. It may be that they don't, there's another loophole, there's another time bar, or they don't have the evidence to back it up or whatever. And if that happens, fine, because I've no doubt everybody skates close to the edge here. You know it happens. But these rules exist for a reason. And if you, particularly lower level managers, if you talk to lower level managers about clubs who've had points deductions for cooking the books in their league, they're genuinely furious because there's a player you wanted to buy and you thought you had and you don't get him because someone else offers a bit more money. And you're all riding right on that budget of what you can and can't afford. And your career can fail because you didn't get that guy who would have scored three more goals and you get promoted. It's real. It's not just, oh, we want to get City. And I, sorry, I'm ranting on here, but I was very disappointed in Pep for doing that. And I just wish, I wonder, I look at the players, I think, do any of them have any doubts? Apparently, everybody just thinks it's us against the world. But surely you might be thinking, well, 
can we be 100% sure this is all okay? Um, the arguments come about that the rules are just there to stop outsiders coming into football. That's the kind of way you justify this. You say, well, it's the cartel keeping out new injections of capital. But that's just a totally amoral argument. It doesn't make any sense. For a start, it's obviously very funny to hear billionaires who are born to rule in um, you know, this kind of carbon power moaning about the fact they're excluded from the structures of power. You know, I don't, I don't feel sympathetic. Um, but also, uh, you you have to try to maintain some kind of robust sporting balance because in the end, what you do is you totally destroy the people who are making players at the other end of the, you know, that without that stability, football kind of collapses. So anyway, I've waffled on a lot to say that uh, I do wish someone on the kind of, on the side of the accused here would at least think, well, there's a process here. We can slightly trust it. And if we're found not guilty, so be it. You're not guilty. But uh, these rules exist for a reason. And you, even if you disagree with them, you don't get to just say, well, I hate rules and I'm not going to abide by them. That's like despot behavior. That's not what you're supposed to do in life. You disagree with the rules, but you follow them because you've signed up to them. Argue against them. Say, I think we should change and make the case. This doesn't make the case. This says... Or we are people who need to be regulated because you can't trust us. Anyway, sorry, um, that's enough of me. No, no, uh, no, no. I enjoyed it. Um, Ovaltine Jenkins says, with City fans displaying a banner in support of their lawyer, can the pod come up with any law-based chance? All I can come up with is, we know what we are. We know what we are. Innocent until proven guilty. We know what we are. Yes, Lord Panic uh, is the guy they've hired. And a big banner read, uh, Panic on the Streets of London. I mean, it could have been you, Barney, couldn't it? You, you were a lawyer. You could have had a banner uh, at the Etihad. Uh, yeah. The interesting thing about Lord Panic is he is a massive Arsenal fan. Um, so I think we should investigate his conflict of interest there. And he should probably... Uh, oh, he's an amazing uh, QC. Yes. KC. Yeah. The, the, the cases he've, he's done are quite extraordinary, aren't they? Yes, he's acted for Big Tobacco. He's acted for Saudi Arabia. He's he's helped all of these people achieve things. No, I mean to be fair to him, he'll take any case. He's all about the principles of law. Uh, he's an amazing. No, 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 no. He actually is. He's an amazing man. We should be more proud of these people because he's absolutely astonishing. And if anyone can get them off this, it's him. I mean, he's amazing. I feel like I only read the first paragraph of his Wikipedia and not the second because I've really done some quite good things as well. Uh, Barry, sorry, you were coming in. I was Not- just going to suggest you're going home in a Premier League ambulance chaser. <laughs> Works, Noz. My, my only concern about Panic is that he's obviously an amazing talent and like world class, but like, will City use him properly? That's my only concern. <laughs> will, will will they give him full reign? It's going to take him a year, isn't it, to get used to the system? <laughs> you can't judge him straight away. You've got to give him a few. <laughs> Right, he'll come in and do great things, but just everyone else around him just won't. It just won't quite click. Whether that's the problem. Um, let's end part one there, and we'll begin part two with Nathan Jones being sacked. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Nathan Jones was sacked yesterday. Uh, that was after uh, Southampton lost 2-1 at home to Wolves, uh, despite having a numerical advantage for 60 minutes or so. George says, will you give credit to Southampton's board for not only sacking the coach before the pod, but giving you 24 hours to prepare? Ollie says, with Nathan Jones now sacked, is Barry any clearer on whether Ralph Hasenhutl was any good? Uh, Jack says, where does Nathan Jones rank in worst Premier League managers of all time? Uh, going by points per match, he is the sixth worst behind Eric Black, Jimmy Gabriel, who was the Everton caretaker manager uh, twice, once before football began in 1990 and once in 93-94. Neil Adams at Norwich, Terry Connor at Wolves. Oh, Terry Connor was very sad then, wasn't he? Jan Siever at Huddersfield uh, and then comes Nathan Jones. Um, I, Barry, will miss Nathan Jones from the Premier League. He was quite entertaining and I don't think he'll be back in the Premier League anytime too soon. Weirdly, when you say worst Premier League managers of all time, the two names that sprang into my head were both also in charge of Southampton, Les Reed and Steve Wigley. So, yeah, that that he's making up the hat-trick there. It was a weird tenure. It wasn't working. Then it looked like it might be working, but it was only working in cup competitions. We obviously got that win against Man City, which was hugely impressive. And we were laughing at our own incompetence on this podcast for saying he was hopelessly out of his depth and then he seemed to be hopelessly out of his depth again just like just when it looked like he might be cracking it but they've played eight Premier League games lost seven of them the comments he's made in recent press conferences and post-match interviews really didn't do himself any favours and it will be interesting to see what happens next because I think he may have inadvertently turned himself into a figure of ridicule that perhaps he isn't. You know, he did undeniably good work at Luton twice. I think it's Rob Edwards is at Luton now doing very well. So the Luton job isn't going to be available anytime soon. What now uh, for Nathan Jones and what now for Southampton? I don't know. Yeah, well, Robin Cowan, in terms of what now for Nathan Jones, our friend Robin Cowan said, will Nathan Jones now be forced into an arranged marriage with a Welsh woman? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard said to the panel, which Nathan Jones-style life could you have all had if you'd not wanted to test yourself? I love this question. I don't know what you think, Nas. I mean, I th he was great entertainment. It didn't work. But I do wonder, you know, we, we sort of want managers to be honest. We get annoyed when they basically just lie and you know they're lying and they criticise, you know, they deflect and all those things. We get annoyed about that. And when they do come out and sort of are honest, I mean, I don't know if he was the fittest human being of all time, but you know what I mean. Like, then we sort of mock it. Yeah, but the thing with uh, Nathan Jones is, is I, I don't know if he's the worst manager, but he might be the most annoying and the thing is, if you're going to be an incredibly annoying person, then be good at your job. That's the problem. So, so, so and, and again, I, I, I compare him in my head to Kim Kardashian in that so much about his life, I know against my will. I, 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 I do not want to know. I do not want to know what his love life could have been. I don't want to know what he's in, in a parallel universe, in a sliding doors moment, what his job could have been. It's all about him. He He's... He suffers from this sort of main character syndrome where he seems to think that he's sitting... In press conferences, he seems, he seems to think he's sitting down to do a Netflix documentary and they're putting the mic on him and he's going to do a big thing about how great he is and this is the beginning of my story and these are all the things I had to 
had to overcome. It's it's almost as if you've taken Brendan Rodgers, taken taken away a lot of what makes Brendan Rodgers a very good manager, and it's kind of like you've not diluted Brendan Rodgers to taste. It's like too much Vimto and not enough water. And what you what you're left with is, and again, like like on a serious note, um, what all managers do, what all leaders do, is they create a spell of I am right. And you, you should trust me. And he did, he did that at, at Luton, and I'm sure he's very good at it. The problem is the scrutiny he's received now, and the like publicity he's received. That spell might be broken forever now because he he could go down to a lower league team. They now know him as a meme, as as like a joke figure, and that's a bit of a worry. Even if he goes back to doing like being a PE teacher, like the, the kids aren't going to respect him because they've all seen the memes and stuff. Do you go along with that, Barney? Yeah, I mean, it's true. Nathan Jones, I laughed. I found it funny. But then I started to feel uneasy and think, is this just a one-joke character? Are we laughing at stereotypes here? I felt it was a bit like watching that thing with David Walliams and Matt Lucas. Like, oh, this is funny for about five seconds, but actually I feel uncomfortable laughing at this. It's it's a stereotype and there's no subtlety. I thought as a comedy character, he only had one one joke and we should sort of move on from intensely arrogant Welshman, you know, are there any other sides? There's no pathos. There was nothing else there. And it should probably be cancelled from Netflix for being offensive. Mark says, I see Jan Bednarek scored for Wolves on Saturday. Does that now clear up who he plays for? I mean, many questions on this theme, Barry. Did uh, John says, did Jan Bednarek himself forget that Jan Bednarek plays for Southampton? Um, Charlie says, is the location and legacy of Jan Bednarek now known to all? He is most definitely at Southampton. As a man who ended the reign of the toughest man in Europe, location of Yannick Vestergaard still unclear. Um, and Craig says, Bednarak touched the ball four times before putting the ball in his own net. Shades of Gordon Strachan. Oh yeah, that was at Wembley, wasn't it? The Strachan one. Uh, surely that's a record from an own goal. I reckon Jan Bednarak hopes everyone will think it was Yannick Vestergaard who scored <laughs> that own goal so he can be absolved of all blame. It was so good, wasn't it? Oh, magnificent. It looked like those, um, you know, you know, in uh, Return of the Jedi, where the Ewoks bring down the Imperial walkers with kind of ropes and, you know, mangoes yes. and nuts and rocks, and they kind of stop. <laughs> There's this very bad kind of special effect where they stumble over really slowly and then go into the ground, and the Ewoks jump on top of Jan Bednarak. It was, it was like that. I'd like to see someone clever could make that work on the internet. I'd be grateful. Um, Peter says on the subject of Lamina's red card, uh, Jarrett. Gillett was the referee. Um, Peter says, please explain how the third player to approach a referee in silence who is further away from the ref than the others gets the yellow card, a second one in his case. Against anyone but Saints, it would have meant defeat. So the thing is, Nuz, I, I, I am pleased that a referee stood up to dissent. I'm just not sure it was the right person and the right time to stand up to dissent. It seemed really quite bizarre. It was so funny. The fact that he decided, right, third person's that that's the line that I'm drawing. I mean, I say line that I'm drawing, at least he did draw a line. It's 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 <laughs> it's, 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 it's this thing of like I I reckon he just subscribed to smelt it, dealt it, done it. And the third person gets gets the card. But this this thing about referees in general, whether they should be accountable and whether they get whether we should criticize them or not. Maybe it's the lack of criticism that does them a disservice. Maybe it's the lack of uh, accountability that does them a disservice. Like anyone in any profession should have to face the music and explain themselves and not have 
Howard Webb, like a dad going around apologising to, to parents, knocking on at parents' houses, apologising. Like, they should have to answer for themselves. In the same way, and I let people say, oh, footballers are on X amount of in terms of wages, referees aren't, so therefore they don't deserve the same scrutiny. But journalists are. Like journalists face all sorts of criticism. Like, uh, like even when you, even when you asked the question on 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 Twitter, I saw the, the amount of abuse you got for just being the <laughs> the, the, the Switzerland of football. <laughs> never ends, not it never ends. I, I'm worried that that might be counterproductive, though, if we actually did scrutinise referees and get them to speak, because the I mean, the basic problem is that referees want to be referees and enjoy it and feel that they're part of a performance. If you you should hate being a referee. It should be something you don't want to do. That the classic referee is like a butcher from Bradford who doesn't want to be here and is scowling the whole game and just wants it to be over. The, the problem started with referees when they became part of the show, when they considered themselves to be making it work, to be vital, to be, to be giving themselves marks out of 10 at the end. How did I do? Um, this is the problem because they want to intervene. They want to be good referees as opposed to just not being a referee. If all referees hated being a referee and didn't want to be one and were doing this just because they had to because the referee hadn't turned up we'd have a much higher standard of refereeing because people wouldn't want to do it. You would Don't intervene. Uh, I don't okay, know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. When the ref doesn't turn up and you have to do it, you realise how bloody hard it is. I know. And I take your point completely. It's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And and you should just want it to be over. And um, 100%. Yeah. Not, not enjoy, enjoy being a referee. It's insane. We'll obviously talk about Southampton's next manager as and when they make a decision. Um, let's do Leeds, the Leeds Man United game. Um, uh, Will says, can Max's first words please... Be, I thought Leeds played really well. They were just unlucky. We're consistently in games, yet nothing from them. It's mistakes at either end of the pitch, as if both penalty areas are laced with Leeds United-specific kryptonite. I wonder, Noz, from a before we do Leeds, do we, when do we start thinking United might be in this title race? We don't this season. It's not going to happen. People keep on trying to make this narrative. It's not going to happen. Not this season. It's just just forget about it. It's it, all it is. Is it's Arsenal and City stumbling. And 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 United quietly doing yeah. well, but but you're saying this because you don't want to say it, right? As a Manchester United fan, but five points behind Arsenal. Okay, you've played two games more. You're on really good form. Marcus Rashford is cannot stop scoring goals. Sit neither City or Arsenal are uh, well. They're both fallible, aren't they? Like it's possible. I mean, it's possible, uh, but lots of lots of lots of things are possible. I I mean, I could. I could take up basketball tomorrow at like five foot six or seven if I'm wearing particular trainers, but it's not. It's just not. It's not going to happen. It's it's the the thing with United is is it's a big story if they're doing well, and it's 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 a big story if they're not doing well. And at the moment, they're just being efficient. They're being um, effective, and they look like a team for the first time in in ages, which is great. And uh, Ten Hag is is clearly a brilliant manager, um, but they, they're not they're not in the conversation th- this year. S- City and City and Arsenal are, are too good, um, and we can talk about Arsenal faltering um, or having a, a relatively bad form of, of late. But they, they are so good. Every they, there is so much about that team um, that makes sense and works together really well to the to the extent that. Maybe that's what holds them back in in that they they because things work so well they're not changing much and then that will cause fatigue and that they will lose form. But City and Arsenal are really really good and and 
as uh, as good as Manchester United are doing, there's too many parts of the team that aren't quite right, and it's a credit to Ten Hag that he's making them look so good at the moment. Barney, I'm kind of one of those people who I'm not I'm not Man United fan, obviously, because um, but I do there's some part of me that wants a high functioning Man United. I either want them to be farcical and everybody's we can write endless things about how the you know the the palace has gone up in flames and the this national jewel has been trashed. Or they need to be good. It needs to be one or the other because they're a vital part of our kind of football superstructure. And them being good under a really intense, bald man with a beard, that's good. I like it. It's I found the whole Solskjaer interlude very boring. Um, Ranić was good because that was sort of chaos and everyone could get very upset and we could talk about, you know, the desecration of this monument. But um, this is good as well, because I feel there's a sort of purpose there. And I was very glad to see Jaden Sancho come back the other day. I get the feeling Ten Hag, um, from his time at Ajax, he does he does work on the players really well. And they do get this kind of bond with him. He's obviously done something with Marcus Rashford, both personally and tactically. Although Rashford deserves a lot of credit for that himself. You know, he's in really good shape. Uh, but if he can do something with Jaden Sancho, I'll be I'll be very grateful because I love Sancho and I think he's a great loss to England and English football that he's he's kind of gone off the rails a little bit. Credit also to Benny McCarthy, who apparently is coaching Marcus Rashford on heading specifically, which is uh, uh, doing a great thing. I just when you said an intense bald man with a beard, I was trying to think who is the most intense bald man with a beard. Is it the games teacher from Grange Hill? That was the sort of the first one to spring to mind. Um, but he was old kids. school. He was he, he was sort of bald man who still had hair. He wasn't a shaved head. Into, you know, no, he, he was one of those no. bald guys with hair still at the sides. That was sort of accidental almost. His beard wasn't right. really sculpted. But so I guess a, that's the kind of skinhead beard bald is what you're looking yes. for. Yes, but I, I guess right. that look draws on the authority of your classic old bald bearded man. There's kind of shades yeah. of that that trope. I think so. There. Um, Leeds probably deserved something more from this. I don't know if they did deserve. They deserved. Did they deserve anything? I don't know. Like some of them, they, they, they had loads of chances again. If I was a Leeds fan, I'd look at those two games against Man U. You know, first one was much better than the second in terms of entertainment. I think, but they more than held their own. They got a point. This one, I thought they deserved a point again. So, if you want to be a a glass half full Leeds fan, you could say we've gone up against a very good team twice in the space of a few days, and there's been very little between us. Um, they and and the correspondent you you whose whose mail or tweet you read out is right. They they just c- can't take their chances. I even thought under Jesse Marsh, they often played very well, but just didn't get the results their performances deserve. Now, seasoned Leeds watchers will know better than me because they have seen every minute of every game. They might say I'm talking nonsense, but I'm not saying Marsh shouldn't have been sacked, but I didn't think it was terrible. And I think Leeds have more than enough about them to stay up. And Nathaniel says, uh, whose search will conclude first, the hunt for Max's Subaru or Leeds search for a new manager? Will either of us have a happy ending? The new favourite is Alfred Schroeder. Um, Barney will be pleased to know is a intense bald man with a beard uh, sacked by Ajax uh, in, in January. So it uh, could work out for Leeds United. Let's go to the King Power. Leicester, Leicester four, Spurs one. Eight goals in two games for Leicester. Uh, another brilliant display from James Madison. Though. Yes, James Madison is good. But again, it's it's that thing again of you can't take your foot off the pedal. Like Spurs... 
obviously Spurs being Spurs, they'll they'll play amazingly well against City and then struggle against Leicester. There was a lot of attention on poor Poro, who who seemed to really struggle in in his debut. But um, Leicester, Leicester have got so many good players. And again, it's that thing of um, as much as we can uh, have a laugh at Brendan Rodgers and question how how good he is at sort of uh, sustaining a, a team for a whole season. He is a he's a great manager. There was one point where he was seen as a possibility to replace Guardiola. So he's he's got something about him and and he's got good players. So all all Leicester need is is, is for that to click. And they they've got too many good players especially going forward and up front that that they won't be they won't be fine and uh and Madison is just again Madison if if he was if this was a different era and England didn't have this many good number 10s he he would be the main man for England as well. He he's he's that good. Um it's just unfortunate that he's got a number of players who are who are similar to him. Um, I think I think as as much as we we can focus on Spurs being Spurs, uh, Leicester were Leicester were class. The, the the only question, one question I've always had, uh, and this is about Spurs in particular, is I just don't get Eric Dyer. I don't understand him. This forward plays that I don't understand. Like I I've not always understood uh, Thomas Muller. I've 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 I still don't properly understand. Harry Kane, I know he's amazing. I know he's world class, but I watch him and I don't always understand him because he can he can dribble past players very slowly, but get past them. He's deceptive, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so many there's so many great things about Harry Kane, but I I understand he's world class absolutely. I do, but Eric Dyer, I don't understand him as a player, and I also don't understand why so many managers who are obviously very good managers trust him. I think I think with um, players players like that, it's a bit like Mason Mount. Um, people from the outside don't quite get. I mean, every manager ever they, he has ever played for, similar to Dyer, trusts him and sort of glows about him. It's because of the way football is now, where there's so much. Um, they kind of players like that. They're both very intelligent people and good at taking on information. Good at following a brief. I mean, they literally get given briefs to 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 read before games now. Players, it's kind of closer and closer to. US to being Lord to, Panic, to to, to NFL, where you, <laughs> you know you have to study swathes of stats, and you're kind of um, you're given a highly specific role. There was a really good analysis of what Dyer did uh, on, I think, match of the day two against Man City the other week, where he had been given a really specific job to do in the way he pressed, and he did it properly, and. Um, Players who it's kind of, in a way it's kind of the overpromotion of what managers do and of everyone having a philosophy and having their input that when you get players who are brilliant academically at understanding that can assimilate all that information maybe they get slightly overpromoted in their careers or they certainly get trusted a lot more it's a bit like when we used to kick the ball up in the air in the eighties if you were tall you'd get in the team or you could win headers this is the opposite of that it's being able to digest information and follow a plan which is something that's not obvious to anyone who's not inside the dressing room. And, and I, I really think that's it. I do think with Dar that quite often he's just like a foot or in the wrong place. He's just a little bit behind. He's just not quite at the level to keep centre-forwards cl- close, you, you know, quiet. You saw that with the Inacho. I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying. That Mendy goal, I mean, we should just mention that. It's his first goal for Leicester. It's only his second career goal. So I think you're probably your Spurs. You think we don't mind him shooting from there. It was an absolute rocket. It, it was glorious, wasn't it? And I don't think, Barry, you can blame Fraser Forster for any of those goals. But he does have a kind of giant redwood quality to him in how long it takes him to 
get to the floor. I don't think Hugo Lloris has had a good season, and I don't really have an opinion on Fraser Forster. He seems a perfectly competent goalkeeper. He's probably not the one Tottenham fans want as their first choice, but he's, you know, I, he didn't do much wrong in that game. The, some of Tottenham's defending was shocking. I wouldn't blame him. Fair enough. I mean, look, Bentecourt is out for the rest of the season. Um, Basuma's injured. Sessegnon's injured. Perisic is their only fit left wing back. It's about 96. They go to AC Milan. I mean, their season could unravel pretty quickly. Um, but look, you never know. So uh, always good to be optimistic. Uh, that'll do for part two. Part three will begin at the London Stadium. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, West Ham 1, Chelsea 1. You were there, Barney. I mean, Thomas Suchek's handball, which we've kind of referenced. I mean, it is glorious, mainly because there are so many penalties given for handball that just really shouldn't be given for handball. And now we get one where a, a midfielder has palmed it around the post and it's not given. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was weird. I, I was tapping away at that stage, desperately trying to sort of get things ready to file, finessing my overly long florid sentences and I just looked up to see the replay of that and I said yeah fine penalty okay I almost started sort of writing it in changing what I was writing because it was so obviously a penalty Um, you know that was morally and spiritually a handball you know there's something deep often handball is irrelevant you know that point is to stop you cheating it's it's called football so we have the the way we stop it being other games is to say you can't use your hands that's interesting okay how's that going to work out we'll spend 150 years evolving without using your hands but when you when you literally stop a ball going in the goal with your hand that's a really basic transgression against the idea of a foot and a ball and it's just it's not even arguable it's you have to say that's a penalty because the whole thing collapses otherwise but apparently not. I mean, Neil Swartz, I make a real point of not knowing. I don't want to know referees' names. I just don't want to know who they are. They're all called Nigel Cakebread or whatever. People somehow know that guy has refereed our team 57 times. And, on th- you know, people know referees' sympathies. They know all about. Ideally, you don't know who they are. But Neil Swarbrick does always, it always seems to be Neil Swarbrick. Is it just that that's the only name you can really, it's a good name, Swarbrick. But I, I my, my, sort of point of principle of not knowing who they are is seriously being challenged. I'm I'm starting to know who Neil Swarbrick is and I don't like I don't like it. Yeah, you know that Graham Pohl is from Tring. Don't you don't want to know that, but no, that, you I just don't know, know it. Stop Everybody... saying that. I don't know that. What is Tring? Where's Tring? <laughs> I mean, but you've all sort of touched on it a little bit, is that there will be people listening and definitely yelling at us for not taking it's the quality of refereeing seriously enough. And I don't want to hammer it and hammer it, but I I mean I don't know what the suggestion is these are the best ones we've had. If you keep criticising them, fewer people will do it and they'll just get worse. And so I'm just acknowledging that some people do get really annoyed by these decisions and I couldn't because actually I found them all very entertaining. Meanwhile, those Chelsea actually, it's funny, under Potter, they they look sometimes incredibly good and you've got Mudrick and Felix and Fernandes looks like a wonderful player and yet they still couldn't beat West Ham. Yeah, I think I think there's still that thing of, of they they're not really playing as a team. Um, they're not really controlling games. There's there's moments where you see how good uh, Enzo Fernandez is, and he he already looks class. You can already tell that he's going to be an amazing footballer. Uh, Felix again, like l- lovely finish, uh, looked great. Um, Mudrick, I, I'm I'm not entirely convinced by like 
he's 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 done a few good things. He's obviously had uh, Milner on toast, but that was Milner, and he's about sixty-seven years old. So, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced by him. But yeah, I, just, I, 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 I think Chelsea. There's some positives to take out of that, um, but obviously that's all overshadowed by by that amazing, amazing handball. I, I mean, the thing that I love about that handball is it was it was cheeky. It's it's almost like do, do, do you know when people use the word cheeky to make it sound less serious, like oh, should we should we make a cheeky bid when when like what does that mean? Or should we go for a cheeky drink, a cheeky pint, as if it's not a pint? Yeah, it's like the word. It's, it's like a terrible word, isn't it? I mean, really, it's a terrible. It's a terrible use of of that word. But you think this is a good use of him, someone being cheeky? I mean, the handball was just a little cheeky flick of the hand. It was it was like a dad start saying, "Oh, I've got your nose." It was it was it was done in in a set with a sense of fun, and I think that's what contributed to him getting away with it because it's like, "Ah, oh, you got me." Because <laughs> you can always get Neil Swarbrick if you're a cheeky little scamp. He's like, "Oh, you kids, I'll let you get a, you know." It's like a Scooby Doo baddie. I would have got away with it. It wasn't for this. Then on the way home, he went for a cheeky Nando's. Absolutely. Um, producer Silas noticed, Barney, there were lots of pigeons at this match. Did you see a lot of pigeons or or not? Well, actually, yeah. Um, I, it's something I always notice at that stadium, that there are these, there are always birds swirling around because it's a vast expanse um, and there are always birds swirling around. You're really high up in the press box. And I had a realization, which I always feel really sorry for them. I think they're panicked. They're sort of stuck in this thing. Imagine being a pigeon and suddenly you're in the middle of a football match. And where are you meant to land? You're tired. Your wings are getting tired. You're circling around. And then while I was watching and writing my report for The Guardian, I, I realized that they probably don't know they're at a football match. They're, they don't know they're being watched. And all that they see is grass and stuff that they might possibly feed on. So the entire thing of of 50,000 people watching them, television cameras being at the center of this thing is totally, they're totally oblivious to it and lost within their own tiny bird-like solipsism. So are you saying they're not completely sent, they're not completely sentient? No, they're a good, it's like beads, you know, sparrow flying through the tent, but from the sparrow's eye view, that's what life is. You're viewing life as a bird. And I, I guess in many ways we're all, just sort of blind, solipsistic birds circling around this un- unknowable universe of the London Stadium, where something unknowable to a bird, how could a bird understand what's happening? Imagine trying to explain digital film technology to a bird, of what's, what's ha- or VAR to a bird. You're circling around looking for sort of worms or, or movement on the grass. They look for movement on the grass, insects, stuff right. that they can eat. Jared Bowen's movement is actually quite good, so that would have, you know, that could have been an issue. Yeah, but Bowen would just be a blur to them. They don't, what is Jared right. Bowen to a bird? They don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, they don't know this entire matrix is happening. They're not anxious and worrying where they're going to land and am I going to get mixed up in the game? Everyone's looking at me. They don't know that's happening. I mean, I suppose the other argument is, the other argument is what the birds are thinking is, why the fuck is he playing Cucciarella at left back? <laughs> literally have Chilwell. Chilwell's literally there a much more kind of progressive player with the ball and and maybe that's that's their take I don't know um, at Barney Ronnie at Bearded Genius if you want to complain that we spent more time on that than we did on Fulham Forest Bournemouth Newcastle and Palace Brighton but let's do those games 
quickly if we can. Um, uh, Nathan says, not saying you have an agenda against them. Can you take a minute to cover how remarkable Fulham's season has been? Tipped by many to be relegated by now. Their recruitment has been fantastic. Existing players stepped up and still entrenched in the top half after 23 games. Uh, Barry, they were absolutely brilliant in this game. Yeah, um, absolutely battered Forrest and Forrest were flattered by the, the 2 nil scoreline. Um, I, we don't have an agenda against Fulham, but they they, they, are, they do seem to be considered you know, quite a safe, dull side unless everything is going horrifically wrong for them. And I presume Marco Silva has to get the credit because as far as I know, and, and I'm happy to stand corrected if I'm wrong, it's the same guys recruiting and the same guys who like hosed a hundred million quid on a load of rubbish signings two or three years ago uh who are still in charge of recruitment like who knew they'd get a tune out of william like they have i i didn't see that one coming i didn't think we'd ever see him again in europe uh so yeah hats off to fulham um bournemouth won newcastle won i mean it could have been huge for bournemouth kieran trippier's goal line clearance he was slightly more composed than Jan Bednarek I would suggest um I really enjoyed Dan Byrne giving the ball away and then just kind of giving up in a huff and then realizing that the the play was continuing and he had to sort of get on with it I wonder I wonder Noz do you think you know Newcastle stuttering a bit remember last season nobody wanted fourth plate like nobody wanted that Arsenal were just losing all the time Spurs as well and you could get that feeling that again nobody wants fourth place yeah, but again, sim- similar to United and Manchester United, and the fact that um, Ten Hag's done a great job. One thing, one thing that I was thinking when I was watching uh, Bournemouth Newcastle is 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 how great a job they've done. And and when you look at the team, they're not man for man. They're not a great team. They're a solid team, but they they're doing without signing patronising. They're doing so well this season to be up there in the first place, and uh, they just look tired. I don't think you can really criticise them for, for that game. Um, they were just blown out of their asses, uh, like for a lot of that game, and and I think that's just going to come from not having a really um, a really deep squad. The, the manager deserves so much credit for getting as much out of them as as he has, um, and it, and it'll, I think so much of this season will come down to teams and how they deal with fatigue. Because yeah, Newcastle in particular in that game just looked knackered. Mm. Eddie Howe did found it quite emotional. Got emotional, choked up in the interview afterwards. Got a lovely um, reception from the Bournemouth fans as well. We kind of covered the big moment of Palace Brighton, um, which was that offside that wasn't given. Didn't necessarily change the score because it was nil nil at the time. Then Brighton took the lead. Um, Solly March and a, and a howler of a, a goalkeeping mistake from uh, Sanchez letting James Tompkins in. I mean, the, the sort of look of shock on James Com- Tompkins' face as the ball sort of bounced up, and he was like. All I have to do is just head that into that open goal. That seems strange. Uh, anyway, Liverpool-Everton tonight in the Merseyside Derby. We'll cover that on uh, Wednesday's pod. Bit of mini fit bar, Barry. Um, Rangers-Partick in the Scottish Cup fifth round. Um, but not the whole story of the game, was it? Yeah, so Rangers knocked them Partick Thistle out of the Cup 1-3-2. But when the game was at one all. Malik Tindleman, who plays for Rangers, he had to get treatment for an injury. Rangers put the ball out of play. Partick Thistle went to throw it back to them. So the ball was thrown to Partick's Kevin Holt. He was going to boot it up the pitch to Alan McGregor. You know, you love to see a class that. Mm. But Malik Tindleman came back on the pitch, having received treatment, 
robbed him of possession because uh, Holt wasn't expecting to be challenged for the ball, went through on goal and scored. So uh, Partick Thistle, their players went berserk with Tillman for scoring the goal and you know his poor sportsmanship. So Michael Beale instructed uh, James Tavernier, his captain, to tell the players to let Partick score a goal, uh, which they did. Uh, although Alan McGregor didn't seem that happy about it. <laughs> Scott <laughs> Tiffany was allowed run up up the field from the kickoff unopposed. And then when he tried to take the ball around McGregor, McGregor made it slightly difficult for him. It briefly looked like Tiffany might not score this goal <laughs> and he was being allowed to score, but he did. That made it two all. Rangers won 3-2. And the Partick Thistle manager after the game was, you know, made a show of, congratulating uh, Rangers on their sportsmanship, and then he got sacked. Oh, what a nice, <laughs> a nice ending to it all. Christian says, where does Barney, who I consider in the top two of Guardian Football Weekly smart people, get his zombie knowledge? Crediting in his uh, ESP piece on Friday, I don't know what that is, uh, George, not Giorgio Romero's original zombie verse with hope and optimism for humanity's survival seems like a mad stretch. I don't understand the question, Barney, but but I thought you might like to know you're in the top two. Yes? Yeah, I wonder who the other one is. Um, uh, no, it's, I remember, you know, there was this moment where zombies became fast and suddenly became, zombies were, they like could quick. run. Oh, yeah, right, quick okay. zombies suddenly appeared. Right. Zombies used to oh. be these staggering hordes. Yes, they did. And yes. you could always avoid them. They would eventually overwhelm you by sheer f- weight of numbers. But the plot was all about finding clever ploys to avoid them, to dodge past them, you know, to fool them. And humans in the end were more ingenious than zombies. Then at some point, zombies became fast and uh, you couldn't avoid them. They they were stronger, faster. And it, it kind of feels to me like a pessimism thing, like... Zombies represent nemesis and the revenge of nature, don't they? The mankind's collapse. Uh, but there was always a sense that in Romero's world, you know, the night of the living dead and all that, that humans could form their own little cells and fight this thing because you're always quicker and smarter than death. But when zombies become fast and unavoidable, it's like environmental catastrophe. You can't avoid it. We're like, we are doomed. This thing will find you. All you can do is sit still and hope it doesn't see you. Um, was so this a West Ham Chelsea preview you were writing? <laughs> no, it was a ex- painfully extended metaphor about the European Super League because right, the FSA, okay. FSA called it a zombie league. And I was trying to make right. the point that zombie, zombies are not now things that stagger around. Zombies oh, yes. are things that, that are smart. And the, the latest Romero, the last Romero film, had a kind of zombie king who had intelligence and empathy oh, and started right. to like tell the other zombies what to do. Zombie rights, zombies have feelings. Um, so the ESL may be zombie, but <clears throat> it's learning and it's smart and it will get you in the end because we now know that zombies win. I invested, I think, a decade of my life in watching The Walking Dead and often thought about just packing it in because it it was very up and down. But quite disappointingly, towards the end of the final series, the zombies, some of them were able to climb they were able to climb over walls. That's not a zombie thing. And oh. Charlie Brooker, he wrote some zombie thing, and I think it was him, and the zombies were able to run. And he's just going, no, come on. Zombies can't run. And I was quite disappointed. I love Kevin Miles, chief executive of the, the FSA. He's a lovely, lovely bloke. He's he a zombie. 
friend of the show. No, right. but in his statement about the European Super League, he described it as the you know the twitching zombie is on the march again. And sorry, Kevin, I agree with your sentiment, but zombies cannot march. They right. they shuffle aimlessly. Do you think, do you, think it, you know, just in terms of Football Weekly, we sh- you should care more about refereeing decisions and VAR than the attributes of a zombie? I don't know. Um, uh, Nick says, greetings to the team behind my very favourite podcast. Max mentioned in passing a man being interviewed and telling a story about punching a shark. That man was a Wakefield boxer called Paul Sykes, who says he encountered the shark while swimming across the Straits of Johor Bahru in Malaysia. The story was in a marvellous documentary included in the first Tuesday documentary strand that was made by Yorkshire Television for ITV. The documentary was called Simply Paul Sykes at Large. Hopefully I've successfully attached a copy. I'm sure your team will enjoy watching it as it has become something of a cult hit. How do I know it's marvellous? I made it with my good friend Roger Greenwood. Please keep up the good work, Nick. So thank you, Nick. Um, I have, I'm halfway through it. It is brilliant. And that is exactly who David Squires uh, was reminded of by Nathan Jones and uh, feel like that's enough for today's podcast. Um, thank you so much, Barry. Uh, thank you, Max. Thanks, Naz. Thank you. Thank you, Barney. Cheers, everyone. I feel, Barney, you're still all new. I still it's, I still think it's the all new Ronnie. I think it's in there. <laughs> I, I'm, I, it's such an effort of, of will to keep that guy alive. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll try. Keep it up. It's really, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Max Sines. This is The Guardian.